invite you to turn in the Word of God this evening to Luke chapter 6. Luke chapter 6. Again, just a word of appreciation to those that are helping with the sanitizing of the building after the morning service. Someone believes that it smells like a dentist when you come in here at the present. (laughs) Maybe that's true. We're doing what we can, and uh, there's much different news that is being put before us at present, but uh, the numbers continue to rise, and I just trust the Lord will put His hand upon it, and especially upon those of His people here. Trust the Lord will preserve us and keep us and be very merciful to us. Look, chapter 6 is where we are this evening, and we want to read from verse 27. We'll just start there. It'd be nice to... Well, maybe we'll go back to verse 20 and just get, again, some of the context of what's going on, the things the Lord is dealing with. It might not refresh your memory entirely, the messages. I've been preached so long ago, but Luke chapter 6, verse 20. And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed be ye poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are ye that hunger now, for ye shall be filled. Blessed are ye that weep now, for ye shall laugh. Blessed are ye when men shall hate you, and when they shall separate you from their company, and shall reproach you and cast out your name as evil for the Son of Man's sake. Rejoice ye in that day, and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for in the like manner did their fathers unto the prophets. But woe unto you that are rich, for ye have received your consolation. Woe unto you that are full, for ye shall hunger. Woe unto you that laugh now, for ye shall mourn and weep. Woe unto you when all men shall speak well of you, for so did their fathers to the false prophets. But I say unto you which hear, love your enemies, do good to them which hate you, bless them that curse you. And pray for them which despitefully use you. And unto him that smiteth thee on the one cheek, offer also the other. And him that taketh away thy cloak, forbid not to take thy coat also. Give to every man that asketh of thee. And of him that taketh away thy goods, ask them not again. And as ye would that men should do to you, do ye also to them likewise. For if ye love them which love you, what thank of ye? For sinners also love those that love them. And if ye do good to them which do good to you, what thank have ye? For sinners also do even the same. And if ye lend to them of whom ye hope to receive, 
What thank of ye? For sinners also lend to sinners to receive as much again. But love ye your enemies, and do good, and lend, hoping for nothing again. And your ward shall be great, and ye shall be the children of the highest. For he is kind unto the unthankful and to the evil. Be ye therefore merciful, as your Father also is merciful. Amen. Amen. A reading there, trusting the Lord to bless His Word to us. Let's pray again. Let's seek the Lord. Our God, we are thankful for the experience, the reality of being able to hide in Thee. Thou blessed rock of ages, I'm hiding in Thee. There are many of Thy people gathered this evening that have known that. They have known it time and time again. When they have been overwhelmed and cast down, just to hide in Thee, the consolation of Thy presence and Thy promises. And I pray that each one of us would be better at doing that. I pray that every Christian would be better at hiding in Christ, running to Christ, leaning upon Christ, resting, resting there where we're accepted, loved, and cared for. Therefore, we pray that Thou wilt detach us more from this world, limit its stranglehold upon us, that we may rest more fully in the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us. Thou knowest the need of every heart tonight, and we pray simply, feed thy sheep, feed thy lambs, and call in those that are not yet in the fold, gather them in. Give the Holy Ghost then to preacher and to listener, and may Christ be exalted, we pray in his precious name. Amen. Well, as most of you know, it has been three months since we preached our last message from this book of Luke. Hard to believe how quickly time goes. A quarter of the year just gone like that. Because I was reluctant to continue on in this series without you before me. (laughs) I didn't want to preach through this series without seeing your faces and thinking about you in that way and considering you uh, having the, the different battle of overcoming just, you know, looking at the camera and preaching to the camera and not having you right in front of me. I, I didn't want to carry on, and especially where we were or where we are. The application of this passage, the text that we are in right now, is not the kind of one that I could address and imagine you possibly being distracted with phone calls during the message that you have, you, you know, you go to get, or at least you go and turn off the phone because you don't turn it off, you know, you're sitting at home, or some other distraction happens, or the kids are running around, and there's different noises, and it's, it's difficult to sit at home and really hear the Word and receive the Word. It's, it, you'll know it's easier to be here and receive the Word with profit than it is to sit at home. I'm sure I'm not alone in that experience. So to consider some of the most challenging words spoken by the Lord Jesus Christ while you're sitting 
at home when I don't know what's going on, I thought there's no possible way, no possible way I can continue to look at this passage. So here we are three months later, returning to where we left off. We are living in days as well that, as I mentioned last Lord's Day, have the danger of giving us a great hardness of heart. It's not easy to watch what you could use, whatever kind of terms you like, rioting, the unrest, to, to watch that, to see it, and to, and to see certain ideologies presented, ideologies that the Christian cannot accept, cannot defend, cannot stand with, to wonder what the motivation really is, to try and discern what is really going on. There's a lot of questions that remain unanswered. We, we simply don't know. And I'm not about to go down there. But I do see the potential, the potential danger of a hard heart that we are uncaring, that we have no ability to see the plight of men. I'm not talking about what they're standing for. I'm not talking about what they're trying to defend or change. I'm not talking about, I'm just seeing the souls of men. There are ideologies that often come to the fore and what we identify them with can get in the way of how we're really to view them, how we are to see them. And that's a danger that we need to check in our own hearts. These are souls. They may not have had the best influences And I don't know from what wells they drink. But I know this. One day they will be in eternity. Either in heaven or in hell. And there's a great gulf fixed that is uncrossable. And holding on to various feelings and attitudes because of the ideologies presented that prevent us from seeing the lostness of the soul is unhelpful. Our Lord Jesus had no time for that. He could see men and all of their need. And the passage that we are in is one that exposes, unlike anything else perhaps, all self-reliant religion, which was common, of course, in his midst. Self-reliance, sense of the ability for man to justify himself or be justified because of where he was from, what line he was from, what nationality he was. The Lord has dealt with the internal. He has scraped away the need for men to understand their spiritual poverty, their need for the righteousness of Christ, the need to mourn over their own sin, to accept that the world will reject them. All of these things, verses 20 through 23, have been dealt with that we've looked at already. And as we spent time in those verses, they were cutting. They were. They cut us. They were words that were challenging, but also liberating. But as I said three months ago, those internal aspects, the mourning, the, 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 the true sense of righteousness that we have in Christ alone rather than depending upon our own, the mourning over sin, all, all of these are internal. They're not evident 
to others. You can't discern accurately or perfectly, you know, whether or not men have gone through this or are going through this or maintain this kind of spirit. So the Lord then turns his attention to the outward life. And it begins to give some insight into what the outward life also looks like if you truly are part of his kingdom. And let's remember that. The Lord Jesus is king. And like all kings, he's concerned with his subjects. You read through the Old Testament history and you see the kings that rise and fall. Some of them were men who came onto the scene with a tremendous need to reform. They were godly men. And they began to apply and put into practice what Scripture taught and engaged in a national reform, starting with the temple, beginning there and reforming religion and then working out to the the reformation of the entire land to greater, greater or lesser degrees. Kings are concerned about their subjects. They're concerned about how they live. Every godly king was not concerned simply about his own religion and his own walk with God. He was concerned about the hearts of all those that were under him. He wanted the entire nation to reflect the mind of God. He wanted everyone to worship aright. And of course, on the flip side, you had those that were ungodly, and some even that weren't just prepared to move away from God themselves, but actually engaged in a breaking down of the reforms, a militant desire to reverse all the good that may have been done, and to impose all sorts of paganism and falsehood within the land, leading the people away. Kings are concerned with their subjects, how they live. And the Lord Jesus is concerned with the same. And he reflects what a renewed kingdom looks like under his reign. What does life look like under his leadership? What are his values? What are his practices? What are his ways? Now, we got as far as verse 27, and I think we got to as far as verse 28, just that language that deals with loving our enemies. And I'll just go over that. This is really a continuation of, of what we dealt with last time, which was entitled The Heart of Christian Ethics, because that's what this passage deals with, the ethic of Christianity, the mindset of the believer and how he lives his life. Last time we looked at the description of love, the description of love. And, of course, I'm not going to pull all of that message uh, and put it all before you tonight, but just to uh, refresh your memory somewhat, we, we, we considered for a considerable period of time, what it means to love your enemies. What does it look like to love your enemies? Verse 27, I say unto you which here, love your enemies. Be loving towards them. And what we sought to establish is that this love, it cannot be the same as the kind of love that we feel naturally to our spouse or to our family or to those that are close to us. It is therefore different in expression, but also in degree. At the same time, because there isn't this natural response that we have towards those that we naturally love and care for, at the same time, there's a call here that we don't want them to diminish, that the Lord is saying, you need to love your enemies. And because there isn't this natural draw out towards them, then the question comes back, well, how do I do that? How can I love someone that I don't have this natural draw towards? And you may have been in positions where you've, you've been challenged by that, struggled with that. How do I love this person? What would love look like if I was to express it as the Lord Jesus wants me to, toward this individual? It's not an easy thing to do. 
And if you've ever had a real enemy, it can be tremendously challenging to know what love looks like toward that person. There's no feeling there, and that's hard to avoid. It's hard to remove. You can't just place feeling there. And certainly prayer will help, which is why the Lord includes prayer. Pray for them. Prayer has a wonderful changing influence, not just upon the objects of our prayers, but upon ourselves as we pray for them. The Holy Spirit uses our prayers and expressions for for the needs of others or the blessing upon others, even our enemies, to actually draw our hearts out towards them and begin to feel something for them. But nonetheless, since it is difficult to truly discern our feelings, what does love look like? And it looks like what the Lord says here. He gets down to the nitty-gritty. We considered that love firstly is seen in what we do. Do good to them which hate you. How am I to love them, Lord? Well, do good to them which hate you. Do them good. Don't do them evil. Don't render evil for evil, Romans 12. Do them good. Love is also seen in what we say. Bless them that curse you. They curse you. What do you say in response? You bless them. You bless them. That's your response. This is what love looks like. And love is also seen in what we pray. Pray for them which despitefully use you. Now let's underscore, the Lord Jesus is not asking us to approve of wickedness. That's not what this text is designed to lead us to think. Approve their wickedness. No, that's not it. And we must be careful when someone confuses love and approval, which is very rampant today, very common. All the various quarters that want to be considered and accepted and have law changed for them, which of course is all basically everywhere happened anyway. But their call for acceptance, often they have also the word love. Love. Always pushing out love. But whenever you talk to them, if you do, what is that love? That love is equated with, conflated with, approval. I need you to approve me in who I am and what I do. And you can't do that, Christian. Every child of God must resist the temptation and fight those that will lead you into seeing that to love me is to approve me. Don't do it. It's not true. Perhaps our young people more than anyone need to understand this. Maybe not. Maybe the older ones need to understand this too because there are many, many a young person that has, I think, had this kind of idea that love is approval. And they have despised or resented their parents because they felt like their parents weren't loving them. Because their understanding of love was not biblical love. Their understanding of love was approval. And as they began to wander or make poor decisions, they naturally felt some hesitation or kick back from the parents trying to guide them in a different direction, and they resented that. They resented that because they saw that as not being loving. That's not true. If there's any young person here who has feelings of resentment towards the parents because you feel like they don't love you simply because they won't approve in decisions that you want to make or things that you want to do, don't confuse the two. Love does not require approval. That's not what the Lord is asking of us here. He's not pushing upon us to approve of men and their evil, but to love them. 
Now, of course, because the Word of God deals with us in this way, because we come back to the Word of God, which is relevant, which is true, which is forever settled in heaven, at the present time, when the entire world seems content to conflate love and approval, Christians who stand firmly on the Word of God are inevitably going to become the, the country's biggest hate group. And that's how we're presented more and more. We're a hate group. Now, it hasn't come generally. They tend to isolate certain churches or certain corners of, of the church, and they say they are a hate group. Sometimes it's justified. But the trajectory we're on is going to be the entire church. The entire church that refuses to approve of men and their sin. The Christians will be hated. Because we don't stand with people in their ideology and in their practices. So, that's the description of love that we dealt with last time with some additional thoughts thrown in for good measure. (laughs) We come then tonight to think of the details of love, the details of love. In verse 29... We come to this language where our Lord says, And unto him that smiteth thee on the one cheek, offer also the other. And him that taketh away thy cloak, forbid not to take thy coat also. Give to every man that asketh of thee, and of him that taketh away thy goods, ask them not again. Before we get into this, it's very important to understand the, the danger of a mistaught conscience. I, I mentioned conscience recently about it being the only friend the preacher has. He goes after the conscience because that's the only mechanism within man that the preacher can work with to try and apply the law and make him aware that he's a sinner. But the conscience is, is, is something we must understand. It, it, it can be a very dangerous thing when it's trained in the wrong way. And it gets trained. Everyone's conscience gets trained by environment, by experience, by education. And one of the dangers of religion is how it trains the conscience. All religions train the conscience. So the man who enters into a religion, perhaps he once felt his lost condition. He begins to practice a certain religion and he no longer feels so bad about himself because... His choice of religion and his adherence to it solves the conscience. I'm doing everything I'm supposed to do. I'm doing everything that's required of me. Therefore, I must now be a good person. His religion then becomes like a morphine to numb what once was there, the kind of pain that was felt by the wrongdoing that he was guilty of. And his religion then just numbs it wonderfully. Numbs it in a wonderful way. So a man lives his life without any concern whatsoever, even though he has great need for concern. The conscience, then, is something that must be taught by the Word of God. And I need everyone to understand that, because the temptation is, especially within Christian circles, uh, they will talk in such a way uh, when someone tries to guide someone or discuss a certain matter, sometimes the response is, well, my conscience... My conscience taught me this, or my conscience wanted me to do that. I felt I had to do that because of conscience. And conscience plays a part. Don't get me wrong. We're not removing the conscience. The conscience is a very important part of our Christian experience. But the danger is if it is mistaught. And it's possible to put weight on a conscience that has been mistaught and will therefore stand 
militantly against plain teaching of the Word of God. Now, why do I say all of this? Well, because the Lord was standing in a day when men had so developed a religion that allowed them to believe that they were near to God. Their consciences were completely at ease. They felt themselves to be fine. And the Lord, as He deals with these things, He is not dealing with them in such a way that all His hearers stand back and say, yes, yes, I'm in agreement, yes, yes. And they're all nodding their heads in approval of His message. <laughs> His message is doing the opposite. His message is scraping away that religious facade that they had built up that allowed them to think that there was nothing wrong in their life. The text, the language of this sermon, the message of our Lord Jesus Christ is to, is to dig so deeply that everyone feels the sharpness. It gets right into the cuticle of the conscience. It causes this nagging pain that you either submit to or you get angry. You begin to resent, become aggressive towards Him. Many people... In our Savior's day, just as in our day, they are comfortable with their religion. And they don't like the kind of language that we have. And, and so, <laughs> knowing this, and coming to this text this week, and I, I've basically not looked at anything to do with Luke in three months, so coming to it this past week and looking at it again, I thought, you know, this will be a very easy passage to reinterpret. Let's make it easier. Let's make it easier than what it simply says. Unto him that smiteth thee in the one cheek, offer also the other. Him that taketh away thy cloak, forbid not to take thy coat also. Give to every man that asketh of thee, and of him that taketh away thy goods, ask them not again. When you sit down and you consider what it's saying, it would be very easy to try and make it say something that isn't so uncomfortable. So I'm preaching from that realization. And I trust that I... I'm not guilty of making it easier for you because that would be greatly a great error. At the same time, I don't want to make it harder than what the Lord taught either. We want to look at it honestly. As we consider then these two verses, what they do is that they, at least one of the major things that they do is they, they militate against our sense of personal rights. That when a Christian faces a personal attack, what they do in response, their witness can be far more powerful when they don't lean on their rights. Now, this is America. Don't go there. Don't touch my rights. <laughs> I thank God for them. I thank God for the process. Thank God for the structure upon which this country was built. It gives people a voice that in other lands they simply would not have a voice. Ordinary people can seek justice. In a way here, it's not perfect. Never is. But it's much better than it is in many parts of the world. But, that said, the Lord is removing the speedy 
sense in which we run to those rights. He's saying, just stop. Stop. Is that what is best? Our example, and I need to underline this before we actually look at the text, our example in this is the Lord Jesus himself. I am not. I'm resisting the temptation to turn to Philippians chapter 2. For those of you with which that passage is familiar, I don't have to say very much because the Lord Jesus is presented there for the degree, the infinite degree of his condescension, his humility. The one who was equal with God made himself of no reputation. And that undergirds then this. He he is able to teach this because he has come down and left so much. And he is able then to address our pride in what he says here. So, let's look at them. First of all, as we think of the details of love, what to do when our character is attacked? What to do when our character is attacked? Unto him that smiteth thee on the one cheek, offer also the other. Every country has its particular quirks. They have their things that distinguish them from other nations, practices, um, ways. For example, uh, tipping isn't as common in the UK as it is here. One of my best friends at school, uh, one of his first jobs was in a restaurant that was right beside the Giant's Causeway. If you don't know what the Giant's Causeway is, Giant's Causeway is a very popular tourist destination, at least as far as Northern Ireland is concerned. Um, there's, a, there's a restaurant, there's a hotel right beside it, and he worked there. And he loves summer. He loves summer. He worked there all year round, but he loves summer because when summer came, the Americans came. <laughs> the Americans came with their tips. They carried on their same habits and while people in Northern Ireland or the UK would generally might give a few things, a few pounds or whatever, but the Americans just seemed way more generous. And he loved it. He was, he was able to live on his tips and save, his, save what he was earning by way of his employment. So that was uh, a cer- certain distinction between even cultures that are fair, relatively close. And you, you look at different countries, you find out that different countries have different ways. You, you have... Uh, the Japanese, that they don't mind slurping. Yeah, we tend, I think you're the same as us. We, we can tend to tell our children not to slurp when they eat. But again, in some cultures, this is, this is a good thing. We would have no problem asking for salt. But in some countries, if you ask for salt, it's an insult. It's, you, you're basically saying that the, the preparer of the food has failed in preparing the food in a way that is tasty. So that would be insulting to ask for salt. And there's all these different things. You need to understand where you are. Now, when we read this text, understanding Jewish culture, it helps us to recognize what's going on. Unto him that smiteth thee in the one cheek, offer also the other. The immediate way to read this for some people is to, you know, just see someone hitting another person. But that's not what's going on. It's someone using the back of their hand to hit someone across the face. And the action is less about causing pain and more about humbling someone. The practice was designed to shame someone. And it was used commonly, especially within a court proceedings or or in some other context, there there would be this this shaming of an individual by hitting them in this way. It wasn't so much to, to smash the face or to cause great pain, but more to, to humble them. And to be struck in this way was a very 
humbling thing. And if we take it in a literalistic way, we will miss the underlying truth because we don't do this today, generally. I don't think people run around now trying to shame people by you know, taking the back of their hands, smacking them across the face. It certainly doesn't happen very often. And I hope, I hope it happens far less than uh, where our imaginations might go. It doesn't happen any, among any of us here. This text is not exclusively interpreted then by thinking of hitting. It can be understood when you're treated in any way where the intention is to humble you or shame you. And what the Lord is calling for here is an understanding of do not retaliate. When someone is trying to shame you, when someone is trying to bring you down, do not retaliate. It is arguing for a spirit of meekness, which as often has been said is not the same as weakness. It is arguing for peace. It is not arguing for pacifism. Those are different things, different contexts. But when people want to denigrate you with their words, for example, resist the temptation to fight fire with fire. That's a natural feeling, isn't it? I'm going to give as good as I received. And the Lord is saying, not if you're under my kingdom, not if you're under my rule. As I looked at this passage and I saw even what's going on presently in this country, and not just this country, other parts of the world too, sadly, I thought, I thought, about, I thought about how this, this is not in the mind. This is not in the mind of those exercising violence at present. It is not. They have no consideration of this whatsoever. Man believes, and rightly so, that violence may help him achieve position against his enemy. That violence can be used to elevate a superior position against your enemy. And it can. Just look at Northern Ireland. Look at the terrorism of the history of the troubles in Northern Ireland. Terrorism can get you places. It can get you where you want. But it will not help you obtain the affection of your enemies. And you see that in Northern Ireland as well. And the same is true here. Violence on the street may obtain something. It may get you to some level of what you want. Don't imagine it's going to get you respect. Don't imagine that it's going to remove the emotional feelings that are felt by those that you suppress. It will not help you obtain their affection. There's a great temptation to justify our violence when someone hates us. They hate us. Therefore, we rise up in violence against them. That's reality. But that is not what the Lord teaches Unto him that smiteth thee on the one cheek, offer also the other. The Lord actually teaches something far more 
powerful. And we don't understand how powerful it is because we don't see it very often. Because men tend to do what men, natural man, will do. But, as Proverbs says, Proverbs 15 verse 1, A soft answer turneth away wrath, but grievous words stir up anger. Proverbs 25 verse 15, A soft tongue breaketh the bone. A soft tongue. The meek response, the turning of the other cheek, the willingness to accept a further attack upon you, rather than to retaliate, is more powerful. It's how you can quench the fires of hatred. And no one knows this better than the people of God. We should know this better than anyone. The history of the church is one of the power of this. We do not have in the annals of church history a host of men who upon the stake or whatever form of death they were enduring for their faith, we do not have them shouting obscenities at their enemies, retaliating, calling down the fire from heaven upon them. That's not what we find. If you were standing there lighting the faggots, and the man who was standing there was calling the fire down from heaven, what do you think his response would be? I'll show you fire. Instead, they saw men meekly plead mercy upon their accusers, upon their executioners, Their hearts were softened. It created an inroad for the gospel for those that were left. The curious mind wondering how? How? How did he respond this way? How come she reacted in this way? So the church, rather than suffering from her martyrs, explodes. The desire to extinguish the church has so often failed because believers turn the other cheek. Christ, therefore, has given us much evidence to this. And we should understand it and say, well, I must therefore put this into place. The most common, of course, we face is is just people being mean in their words, calling you names, accusing you of things that you've never done or never said. And how do you respond to that? Well, I was reading a sermon by Spurgeon preached in 1988. He's an older preacher at this stage and He was preaching on David dancing before the ark. And he said, (laughs) listen to this. Brother, if any man thinks ill of you, do not be angry with him. 
for you're worse than he thinks you to be. If he charges you falsely on some point, yet be satisfied. For if he knew you better, he might change the accusation, and you would be no gainer by the correction. If you have your moral portrait painted and it is ugly, be satisfied. For it only needs a few blacker touches, and it would be still nearer the truth. So true, isn't it? We fight to defend ourselves in a particular area. All the while, there's far more blacker things in our lives that, if the truth be known, legitimate accusation could be made. So best, turn the other cheek. Don't retaliate. Leave it with the Lord. This is Christ's kingdom. Get under your skin much? (laughs) That's the point. It's only by the grace that it doesn't. Also, what to do when our property is threatened? What to do when our property is threatened? And him that taketh away thy cloak, forbid not to take thy coat also. If we take this literally again, like literalistically, we end up with people standing naked. You take their outer coat, you take their inner cloak, they've nothing on. So you have an argument here that you should just allow yourself to stand naked if, if, if we take it in that fashion. But that's not the sense. The sense is if someone wants to sue you, if they want to take away your cloak, and you think, well, why would you do that? Well, in those days, your outer garment particularly was of value. I mean, people slept in it. It was used to keep them alive, especially in the winter. And it was very valuable. They, they depended upon it to sustain them. I mean, you, you have to put yourself back 2,000 years. You don't have, you know, air conditioning and, you know, heating systems and, you know, perfect 72 degrees or whatever it is you set your temperature at. You, you don't have that. But you had to weave, you had to make, you had to put together garments that would keep you alive. And be assured the frost can come down at night in Israel certain times of the year. It's actually amazing when you get to parts of the world that are scorching hot during the day. But they get freezing at night time very easily. So they depend upon these things. But here's what the Lord is instructing us in. That if a man wants to sue you for your cloak, take what is very valuable to you, give it to him rather than go to war with him. Don't fight him over it. If it will help satisfy him, give him the undergarment as well. Give him the cloak, give him the coat, whatever will do to prevent the inflaming of anger. Give in. If you can put a flame out by sacrificing stuff, do it. I must be careful. I don't think it is to the degree that it would leave you impoverished and lead you to personal death or your family's death. I don't think that is there because the commandments have a broad application. So we must keep it all in context. But... But if someone's coming wanting to sue you for some part of your material, what you have materially, 
and they want to take it from you, just give it. And, and, and if he pushes for more, give him that as well. Rather than fight over it, rather than make a huge big deal over what really isn't huge. Certainly for many people it wouldn't be a loss that would be worth starting a row over. John Gill says on this, Christ teaches patience in bearing injuries and affronts, and not to seek private revenge, but rather suffer more than indulge such a temper, end quote. They're coming after you, let them come. Let them take it. Now, this, this is, this is, here's where the difficulty is. We get very attached to our stuff. We do. We get very attached. And many of our hymns address it. They address the, will, the willingness to, you know, give up our gold and silver. Every Reformation time and other times as well, let goods and kindreds go. This mortal life also, the body they may kill, so on and so forth. We sing it. And the Lord's addressing the willingness that we ought to have to just let the material stuff go. Don't fight over material things. Don't cause a ruckus, a row. Don't inflame more anger simply because it's in your right to stand here on this. He says, no, if you're under me, if you're under my dominion, under my reign, you don't have to fight for your stuff. Your father knows what you have need of. And I'd far rather that you would extinguish the anger and remove the animosity by giving to the person whatever it is they're looking for rather than fight for something, for what? Some material thing? Again, I say there's a limitation if your life depends on these things. If your life depends on it, then there's a different argument. But if this is just fighting because we're attached to something, some sentimental attachment to stuff, Jesus says, you, you, haven't, you haven't got it. If you're under my reign, what, what power does stuff have over you? Why does it have this power? It does, doesn't it? It has, has such a power, a hold over us. Our comforts, things we possess, they put so much significance, so much weight on them. Again, they're blessings given by God, bestowed upon us by God. We receive them with gratitude, but as I've perhaps said before, it was always stuck in my head in a way that I could never forget, that, that Tozer talked about the stuff that God would give us, our stuff, our things, our possessions, what we have. And he said, it's okay to have them and hold them, but, but hold them out here, not in here. So if God takes them away, it's not like he's prying them from our, our cold, dead fingers. You know, if, he, if he chooses to take them, he can take them through whatever means or providence. Stop holding on to stuff as if your life depends on it. Hiding in thee, thou blessed rock of ages, I'm hiding in thee. It's Christ that matters, running to him, resting in him. This is what he's drawing men to consider, that the message he preaches removes men from a kind of religiosity that salves the conscience and allows them to maintain their covetous hearts. And there are other places we're going to get to and look where he addresses covetousness head on. And it was very applicable to those in his day. But here there's that, again, the sense of the message, stop clinging to stuff. If someone wants to take your cloak, forbid not to take thy coat also. It's just stuff. Bear the injury. Don't inflame the anger further. 
Thirdly, what to do when our help is requested. What to do when our help is requested. Verse 30. Give to every man that asketh of thee. Give to every man that asketh of thee. Every man. <laughs> Just again, let's bring it back to 2,000 years ago when these words were said. The Jews would quite happily give to their own, at least for the most part, the best of them. The best of them would be happily give to their own. But to give to every man, the barbarian, the Samaritan, are you kidding? The Lord Jesus is driving at something that they wouldn't even entertain for a second. Give to every man that asketh of thee. Some comes, someone comes asking, you give. Now, again, we have to be careful with the limitations placed on this by other scriptures. Does this mean we don't prioritize family? No, it doesn't mean that. You still prioritize your own. If a man doesn't provide for his own, he's worse than an infidel. You don't, so if someone comes and asks you for your entire wealth, give me everything, and you give it away, and it leaves your family impoverished, you, you, that, that's, that's not what Christ is asking you to do. We prioritize family. We prioritize God's people. There are times when we're asked to help someone beyond that, and there needs to be a willingness to give. I can't address every context here, but obviously the common one is where you have people who come and they just simply ask for money. They ask for money. You have phone calls, people asking for money, coming, you know, calling the church in desperate need. And you have a judgment call to make. It's, it's, it's not easy. And without spending too much time in all of this and even right process and so on, there are those occasions where you simply don't know. I'll address that and leave it there. There are times where you just don't know. Is this person playing me here? Or is this a legitimate need? And you can't discern. You ask questions, you talk at length, you inquire, you do the best that you can. And you just, you just can't discern where, where is the truth in this. How much need is there? And I'll, I'll be honest with you. I have given money at times, not because I was absolutely sure of the need, but because I'd rather be without the money than potentially disobey the Lord. And I go through that battle in my mind. Okay, I don't know. I don't know what's going on here. So, would I, would I rather potentially stand before God here as having a hard heart, unwilling to help someone legitimately in need, to find out in the day of judgment that that person really had that need. And I really could have helped, and I didn't. But I'd rather be there and still have whatever I held on to. Or give up whatever it is. At least know that I won't have to stand before God on account of being indifferent to men and needs. That's my, that's, I'll say no more than that. That's my thought process sometimes. I, I, I don't know. And I think perhaps many of you have been there before. I don't know. Does this person really need my help? Give to every man that asketh of thee. If you have the ability, if you have the means, 
Again, it's not plunging you into poverty. It's not going to remove responsibilities you have to family or even to the Lord's people or other contexts and needs that are in your life. But give to every man that asketh of thee. Again, it's, it, whatever way that hurts, it's meant to. It's not meant to be easy. The Lord's not saying this in a way where everyone's just cheering and saying, what a wonderful thought. This is great. I'm in support of this. Everyone's like, ow. <laughs> As Vody Bauckham always says, if you can't say amen, say ouch. And that's true. There's that time where you're like, you're weighing something up and you, you wish it wasn't true because it's painful. And that's how the Lord preached, especially on this occasion. Then finally, what to do when our property is lost? What to do when our property is lost? And of him that taketh away thy goods, ask them not again. I don't think the idea here is of theft. It's not talking about someone stealing your stuff and running away. That brings its own punishment. I think the context here is of a legitimate loan, an agreement that I'll lend this to you. It may be something of some description or it could be money. And it's loaned with the intention of it being returned. But for whatever reason, the person is unable to do it. Unable to bring it back, unable to return what you loaned them, and unable to fulfill their obligation. And the Lord may be touching here on something that was written into the law in Deuteronomy 15, when in verse 2 he says, Every creditor that lendeth ought unto his neighbor shall release it. This is the year of release, seven years. He shall not exact it of his neighbor or of his brother. And what's challenging here is that it went on to say how you could do it with a sojourner or the stranger. You could exact it from them. But here the Lord is just making it very simple. He's just saying, him that taketh away thy goods. I think the idea is anyone, take away your goods, ask them not again. Don't go after it. Remember, even in terms of the law, sometimes when we read like an eye for an eye, tooth for tooth, exacting justice on matters in a civil capacity, in a legal capacity, that we imagine therefore it demands an eye for an eye, a tooth for tooth. There are certain contexts where it does, but there are also contexts where you don't have to demand an eye for an eye, a tooth for tooth. If someone steals something from you and you wish to lessen the return you can do so. And that's what the Lord is encouraging here. Do not press for all of your rights. Don't push to the full extent of the law. If you can show mercy to reveal something of the gospel, again, look at the whole context. Go down to verse 36. This is the point. Be ye therefore merciful, as your Father also is merciful. Father is not exacting upon everyone that which they deserve. Otherwise, we'd all be dead. There would be no rain upon the unjust. There's common mercy shown to all men. And Jesus says, if you want to reflect, if you're under this kingdom, under this rule, under the reign of Christ, this is how you deal with these certain Interpersonal challenges and difficulties. Someone can't make up 
debt. And this is, I mean, I can't take time. I don't intend to go to Proverbs and show, look, you don't lend money that you can't afford to lose anyway. Let's put it that simple. You never lend money you can't afford to lose. Principle. Don't do it. So in this context, you've lent something with the ability to lose it. If, you, if you're lending something you can't afford to lose, you don't lend it. You don't co-sign on someone's mortgage, hoping that they will faithfully pay it, and if they don't, it comes down on you. But you can't afford to do it. You don't co-sign. It doesn't matter who it is. You don't do that. Unless you're able to actually lose it. Then you can choose whether you're willing to do so. These are kingdom principles. This is Christian ethics. This is the Lord removing, scraping away a religious, comfortable existence. And he's saying, when you're on these occasions and you want to exact justice and rightness, don't. Don't. Be therefore merciful, as your Father also is merciful. May the Lord help us. Help us all. Let's bow together in prayer. It is the mercy of God that makes every complaint against Him a violation, an act of rebellion and treason. God is so merciful to every one of us. And to the person that may have the greatest complaints here tonight, God has been merciful to you. You need to see that mercy and respond in humility and love. If there's resentment in any heart tonight, if there has been that, perhaps even in the past, this spirit of justice rising up within your heart that contains no mercy, confess it. See it in light of the mercy you've received. Give up. The argumentation for your rights and submit to the rule and reign of Christ. May the Lord help us to be true image bearers and reflect the light that He wants us to reflect to this lost and perishing world. Our Father, we confess again just how far short we fall in these areas. We confess any time when we have failed, and there have been those times, of that there is no doubt, where we just, we just don't want to turn the other cheek. We want to give back as good as we've received. And there are times we, we want to justify keeping our property and just fighting for things, stuff that will 
Well, it doesn't matter. Help us, help us, Lord, to show what our Lord Jesus so wonderfully presented in his life. Help us to see how he could have called legions of angels to rescue him and pour out judgment upon his accusers and tormentors. And yet he who thought it not robbery to be equal with God made himself of no reputation. Clothe us with that humility. May it be discerned by a world that's filled with pride. May it have a converting influence upon hard hearts. Help us then. Be with us. We thank thee for this day and for thy word. May we receive it with profit. May it please thee to conform us to the image of Christ. May the grace of our Lord Jesus, the love of God our Father, and the fellowship of the Spirit be upon all thy people now and evermore. Amen.